Hello and welcome to another episode of the Beat the Press podcast, the show which looks at how footballers and the people around them deal with pressure on and off the pitch. As ever, with me is my co-host and a man that plays football, a bit like he's taken a half-time fag break, it's Luke Jimison. Hi John, good to be here. Um, an illustrious introduction as ever and, and, and that ties in quite nicely with, uh, with the guest that we had this week, doesn't it? Yeah, so this week we interviewed Simon Clifford, who, uh, if he's not known to you already, the, he's the man that uh, was responsible for bringing Socrates, uh, the, Dr. Socrates, Brazilian footballer, politician, uh, and captain of the 82 Brazil team, to Garforth Town for a 15-minute spell, uh, whilst Simon was, was manager of of Garforth and and that that kind of came towards the end of a career which saw saw Simon uh, work with Sir Clive Woodward, uh, Lee Sharp uh, and uh, introduce Futsal to the UK. He's the man basically credited with bringing Futsal uh, to the UK. So uh, yeah Luke it was a I mean a really fascinating interview wasn't it? It was. It's, it's interesting you touch on the Socrates thing there, John, because uh, I think Simon said that, that that was in November 2004. So it's almost kind of the 16 year anniversary of uh, of Socrates turning out for Yorkshire based uh, Garforth Town. I imagine he had to layer up to brave the uh, the, the cold Yorkshire weather. Um, but yeah, really, really fascinating story. And I suppose, um, I mean, I mean, my takeaway from it is, you know, a man who's got the imagination to bring a, a you know, a legend of the game like Socrates to play non-league football just shows you kind of how open-minded and forward-thinking is in terms of all aspects of the game. Yeah, absolutely. I, I've got to say, I just love the thought of someone that captained the 82 Brazil team turning, <laughs> turning up at Garfield Town. I think they were playing Tacasta Rovers, as well, <laughs> just, just for anyone who's, who's interested. I mean, John, you're a man that's probably sat in several uh, football dressing rooms and looked to the people around you and felt fairly insignificant and inferior. But imagine if, you know, Socrates was sat next to you while you were putting your shin pads on. Yeah, I can relate. I can relate to that. I can relate to that. Uh, and ju- during this, during the chapter, Simon, we, we, we touched on Socrates, but as, as Luke was saying, he, Simon's just uh, a, a, such an interesting guy with a, a wealth of, of experience. Uh, and because of that, we actually took a slightly different slant with, with this interview. We, we asked Simon to pick out five psychological factors that he that he felt were important in, in influencing footballers. Uh, and this came off the back of an article, we talked about it a bit in the, in the, in the interview that, that Simon was part of, where he talks about the perfect footballer uh, and what the kind of psychological components of the perfect fo- footballer might be. Yeah, and, and kind of a really, really interesting exercise. Uh, so Simon sort of did something probably we'd all like to do, which is sit down and think of like, you know, what are all the key components that make a, a successful footballer? And John, am I right in saying he came up with 132 in total? Yeah, it's 132 at the time. I think he's actually gone up to about 150 now, Simon was saying. But what's interesting about that is that the vast majority, uh, or I think it was about 60%, he w- were psychological uh, attributes, which is obviously kind of right in the sweet spot of this podcast. So so we asked uh, Simon to talk us through what he thought were five important psychological traits. So throughout the interview, he kind of takes us through each of those, gives us an example of a player that demonstrates that attribute. Um, and we have a bit of a discussion about it. And no, it's really, really interesting. So Enjoy. This 
this week's guest is a man that can count Socrates, Lee Sharp and Sir Clive Woodward among people he's worked with, credited with introducing the original version of futsal to the UK and founder of the Brazilian Soccer School Network, whose alumni include Michael Richards and Ryan Fraser. It's our pleasure to welcome to Beat the Press, Simon Clifford. Thanks very much. Great to be here. Hi, Simon. Uh, welcome to the pod. I, I mean, that's, a, that's a, just to start with, that's a hell of a list of names to have worked with. I mean, what was it like crossing paths with sort of true legends of the game like Socrates and, and Gaza and, of course, Lee Sharp as well? All great people. And funnily enough, the day I'm speaking to you today, it's 16 years to the day since Socrates was over in England with us playing for Garforth. Yeah, Socrates, I, I, I have not met in my life another man quite like him. Uh, he was a, a one-off and sorely missed. Lee Sharp was very keen on, on having fun as well as everything else in football, which you should, it's got to be fun. And Sir Clive Woodward, yeah, another, another singular man and in sports, the most outstanding thinker that I've, that I've come across. Simon, the, the connection with, with Socrates, I think, stemmed from setting up the Brazilian soccer school franchise in the UK, and that, that promoted a focus on ball skills, close control and, and fitness. And I think it's also credited, if I'm right, with being the first training programme in the UK to, um, to use the original Brazilian version of futsal as a means of coaching. Now, a lot of this stuff is kind of common sense now, but what was it like trying to kind of instill that, that coaching ethos at a time when... You know, there was a more of a focus on direct style of play and 11-a-side games. Yes, it was fairly difficult and we didn't have futsal in this country in any form at that point. In fact, our own football association hadn't come across it or uh, looked at it, you know, hadn't heard of it. So there's quite a bit of resistance and you know, I was a pretty young guy at the time. I was in my early to mid-twenties, but I, from what I saw, I felt that the technical side in England need, needed a huge lift. And so the schools, the soccer schools and the introduction of futsal, it was quite a revolutionary proposal at the time. And um, so there was, there was a fair bit of resistance, but eventually clubs got on board. Everton were one of the first and then Middlesbrough, Newcastle. And eventually, after a few years, the Football Association got talking to me. And then beyond that, they obviously took it on themselves. So, yeah, di- different times today. And Simon, it might be an obvious question, but how does sort of a, a young man from the northeast like yourself? What was it that really caught your imagination about football in Brazil? I mean, it's—I probably know the answer to this, but it'd be good to hear it from you. Well, I grew up as a football fanatic. I think I went to my first game at Middlesbrough, four or five year old, and fell in love with the sport and what the sport could bring in a wider context to a community. Our whole family life centred around Middlesbrough Football Club, Essen Park, and the town was either you know, up or down, um, matched up, possibly more down than up, matched up to the fortunes of the team. And so an early fascination with football, got into playing it and loved it even more. But the, the 82 Brazil team really caught my attention. There was a, one player at Middlesbrough I particularly liked called Terry Cochran, a Northern Irish international who was skillful, did step overs, creative player. But when I saw Brazil 82, I saw a whole team of them. So that really got me on a a journey with the Brazil national team. And then I, I went to study sport at university and took as many options as I can, could regards football. But I think the degree in those days opened me up to the fact that maybe we were in my own innocent way. And I was very young, as I've said, but I thought perhaps we're not coaching football in, in the right way. And I got into being a school teacher. I almost went straight into doing a PhD and diverted at the last minute to 
doing a PGCE, which my wife was on. She was not keen on me doing further study. She was my, my girlfriend at the time, not keen on me doing further study at that point. And when I began teaching, uh, it's when my, my coaching sort of career began. And I, I, I was trying to use various new notions that either I'd come across on my degree or uh, little bits I'd got from abroad. I was looking at Ajax at the time. And eventually I wrote to the English FA, asked them about Brazilian training and techniques. Brazil was the most successful team in the world at that point. They still are with five World Cups. But um, also they, they played the game in a particular way and every player seemed comfortable on the ball. They didn't have too much information. And then eventually, by great luck, fluke, whatever, Janino signed for Middlesbrough and I made it my business to get in touch with him. We became friends and that's how the whole thing really got going. And then, then later on, uh, he introduced me to various other players. I became reasonably well-known in Brazil in, the, in football circles. And obviously, as is here, football football is a small world and you get in with one or two people in with others. So that started an unbelievable journey for me and I tried to bring as much of it back to England as I could. Simon, you mentioned Janino there. There's a, there's a great quote I've seen attributed to you where Janino sort of said the average club at the end of a street was sort of more professionally rung than Middlesbrough when he when he first turned up. What, what were the early things that you sort of learned about how the approach to football in Brazil and how it differed to the UK? It was far more professional and science-based. In fact, even in the 58 World Cup, um, Brazil had psychologists that travelled with them to that World Cup and a level of detail in the preparation there in the wider team the team behind the team that we, I wouldn't say we had in England till possibly uh, around maybe 2000 and 2010, you know. And when Janino said that statement to me, which he did, he was, he he couldn't understand how a club like Middlesbrough had paid him, you know, four times the salary he was getting in San Paulo. And then, you know, San Paulo had maybe three training centres, which I ended up eventually visiting and spending a lot, lot, lot of time out of a, several years but uh, he couldn't understand how they had the money for the wages but not the sort of the support and infrastructure and they and then he would say to me is Manchester United the same as this and I'd say I think it's pretty much the same I, I said it's you know Brian Robson was captain there I think it's a lot of the same work and a method and English football was it was in a real mess to be honest with you and um, you know I, when I later became head of sports science at Southampton I was one of the I think the first I think well it was probably one of the first clubs to to have a head of sports science, maybe Bolton was before that, but everything's changed, you know, so much in, in, in the last 10, 15 years. But Brazil, yeah, it was a very interesting for me to go as a young person. I mean, when I came back, I was still a teacher at the time. I came back, I thought, right, I need to stop my job and introduce some of this to England. We need to be, we need to be taking this whole thing a lot more seriously. Simon, in, in recent times, you've, you've switched your attention to integer footballs. So that's, that's a venture you founded, which aims to create, I think, more kind of complete football. So there's, there's a real focus on developing off-the-pitch attributes um, among the players enrolled on the programme. Um, can you tell us a bit more about the company? Yeah, so I set that up a few years ago and really, by that point, I'd been working in football for just over 20 years. Um, in fact, 2014, a guy from the Times newspaper, Rick Broadbent, very nearly did a book with me, which was looking back at my first 20 years in football, which was called The Revolution Starts Now. I think the book went off to the Berlin Book Fair and a friend of mine sort of pulled me out of doing that and said, maybe not any books, get on with living living the next 20 years of your life and see where you go. So I did a, I had a period of study. I started making some moves towards some 
finally towards some postgraduate work in uh, at Liverpool, John Moore's University with a, a couple of people I knew there. I started looking at football and even what we'd done in terms of the technique. I mean, I think across this country, Brazilian soccer schools had, you know, there's, uh, it was it was very, very different, very revolutionary at the time. I think a lot of clubs now, the FA even, took a lead from some of that and, and you know, that... That, that's embedded now in our football culture. Thanks be to God, there's been a technical revolution due to many factors, but I think we played a small part. So I, I started to look back at my time. I remember being with the young lads at Southampton that we had, you know, Bale, Walcott, Nathan Dyer, Lalana, Dexter Blackstock, David McGoldrick, Leon Best, great lads. But at the time, I used to say to them, let us imagine not Pele, let us imagine not Maradona, let's imagine something better. What has he got? And I would say to them, we're not preparing you for football this season. Preparing you for football in four or five years' time, the, game, the game's going to be different. It's getting faster. And so trying to postulate what, you know, of course we never get perfection, but what, what the complete or perfect play would look like. And at that point, Ronaldo had only just pitched up at uh, Manchester, uh, Manchester United. We hadn't really seen him yet. But as time went on, he he pretty much, you know, he became a pretty perfect attacking player and complete player and obviously time has moved on and so in the last um, in those years before integer I started to think well what, what does a player need today the game is changing so quickly distance covered high intensity sprints the surface is changing pitch is different what, where's the game going next what does the, the player of tomorrow need so I started to list stuff and came up you know over a, quite a period of time, but I came up with a list of about 132, I think, in the end, areas. And the majority of these were psychological, which had either come from my experience working with players, both in the soccer schools, in clubs, and working with players individually, or from reading and from research. And um, so I got a saturation point where there wasn't too much further coming out. And then in, in the years that have followed, that list has maybe gone to about 150. So you can look at stuff like you know, John Wooden's pyramid of success and there's a fair amount of psychological prerequisites that he has there and there's other sort of schemas like that. But I, I try to take in everything that we might need in the future and try to look at those who are postulating what the future game would look like. So, uh, yeah, so Integer, we began. In the main, we support players, young players. A fair few of them are in, are in, in clubs and able to help them hopefully get a perspective without just seeing themselves and the footballers to help them maybe not let their identity get too too much intertwined with that, which can be a danger because with young players, we don't know very much what's going to happen, but the statistics and all the rest of us tell us to a large extent that um, the chances of actually getting through are not are not that great. So we, we work with them in an holistic sense and around the same time, I got working with some professional players again individually and that led me to work with a football agency who I work with today and I mentor the, the players within that agency. Something that's really interesting you sort of referred to the the technical revolution um, that football's kind of gone through over the last 15-20 years and, and we kind of have a theory on this podcast that you know that's kind of happened now and probably the next 15-20 years it's going to be more of a, a psychological revolution in the game um, so it's really interesting that you mentioned sort of a, those 132 characteristics that you'd identified and I think I read somewhere that sort of 60% of them were, were psychological so so the majority of them 
be really interesting to kind of pick out uh, some of the key psychological characteristics that you've kind of identified and, and why you think they're important and, and kind of what players in the game that you've worked with sort of epitomise those characteristics. So it's kind of over to you, really. You know, what, what are the key things that, that you've picked out as part of that work? I mean, if we took, took the psychological side in general, I think you're right. I think we're hopefully coming into what's that which is going to be a psychological revolution. If you take from Bill Bezik, the mind is the athlete, the body, yeah. the means. And this, I think, is where we need to be working. If we get this right, the other bits uh, are so much easier. Yeah, so we can talk mental skills training, mental skills techniques, things like you know, mental imagery, visualisation, self-talk. I've got a place for that in this, this sort of scheme. But looking at deeper stuff, kind of lifestyle stuff, as you've just alluded to there. So one that I'd pick out first of all, and it, it's common, but I just want to give it a sort of a little bit more breath, is goal setting. So goal setting, I would pick out a player that I've worked with to put alongside this sort of heading. There's Micah Richards. And I got involved with Micah when he was pretty young, maybe about 11 or 12. Um, not sure if it was before that, but... And Micah was part of our soccer schools, but his father and I became good friends. And... Um, from a very early age, his dad, Lincoln, and Micah had a belief that Micah would play for the England national team. In fact, uh, Lincoln, his thoughts were that Micah was going to end up captain in England. Now, at the time, there wasn't a lot of perhaps maybe evidence for that. Micah in 11, 12, even 13, uh, there wasn't a professional club um, wanting to sign him or anything along those lines, but worked hard and had a, had a goal had a vision, had a sort of uh, a sense of destiny almost. I think that he was going to fulfil this, uh, these thoughts that his dad had. And so his ambition wasn't to be a footballer. It was to play for England and to captain England. And I used to work with Lincoln maybe once a week on, if you like, strategy, which wasn't necessarily just, you know, Micah's training. It was looking at wider stuff and longer term stuff. Um Eventually, Micah signed for Oldham, age 14, and did really well. And not long after that, he's at Man City. And then things started to speed up a little bit. He went very quickly into the reserve team and then making his debut, I think he was 17. In that period before then, Lincoln and I would sit and we'd sort of say, well, if we are aiming for the England team, uh, at the time he was playing centre-back, he'd originally been a midfielder, but at this point he was just before getting into the, his debut at City, let's say when we were in the, in the reserves, he was playing centre-back and previous to that being the centre midfielder as he'd come through, but he's playing centre-half. And so Lincoln and I, I'd say to Lincoln, well, look, if we're aiming for England, let's have a look at, you know, who's in front of us or who's going to be. Now, these people were way in front at the time, way in front. But let's say in centre-half, you've got John Terry, Rio Ferdinand, still pretty young they're maybe going to be there for a little bit of time got Jamie Carragher kicking about there as well so the right back position Gary Neville Gary I think was a little bit older and maybe we thought there's going to be I don't know we considered other people there wasn't too many right backs let's have a go at right back they fixed themselves on that still had England as this objective under 16s gets into the England national team scores on his debut in a tournament in France and on from there, obviously makes his debut for the England first team, aged 18, and was the regular right back 
for quite a bit and had a great rise at Man City and did incredibly well. But I look back on that and compare with other people that I, I work with and have, have come across. You might say, I want to be a footballer. The problem with that is when you get to be a footballer, what's next? Micah very much set his goal and set his intent on playing for England. And uh, it happened very quickly in front of my eyes, almost sort of miraculously quickly. But I've seen players that don't have a goal and don't have an aim. And some of them, you know, get to a reasonable, reasonable level. But I think goal setting, Napoleon Hill, the, if you call him a motivational psychologist or self-development expert, he calls it a definite chief aim. And I think having one of those is important. Almost a life goal and sticking to it. Some players that I work with will make it into a couple of page mission statements and read it each day. Um, but I saw good evidence of that working with Micah and then you you break that down, you can have smaller goals within that. Maybe for Micah, he achieved even, you know, it, it came that quick. It's, it took him by surprise. But um, yeah, I think a definite chief aim, um, goal setting important. Simon, I wonder if one of Micah's goals was sharing a Sky Sports studio with Roy Keane. It could have been. He didn't mention it at the time, but it could have been. <laughs> He's doing good on TV. He's great, actually, isn't he? Yeah. Now, I was just, just picking up on one point you made there, which was the influence of Micah's father, Lincoln. Um, it just struck me that that was something that you really saw in the, the recent Spurs All or Nothing documentary. Um, Jaffet Tanganga uh, was on there and it was really evident the role that kind of his, his father played in his, um, in his progression. Is that, is that something that you've seen with kind of other, other players? Is, is, how important is that, that kind of role of a family member? It fascinates me and it's something I've took particularly note of over the years. I began with Janino at Middlesbrough and at the time he was 22-23 Brazilian and South American player of the year his mum and dad came over with him but his dad was very much his dad and even Janino ended up back at Middlesbrough three times even when Janino was still 30 his dad was still his dad if I used to knock round at Janino's house and knock dad let me in Janino's upstairs doing something if he didn't come down quickly his dad used to have a go at him which Sometimes I was a bit, wow, he'd, he'd come down, he'd be in a T-shirt and shorts upstairs wearing Brazil number 10 short, shorts because at the time he was Brazil number 10. Maybe he was relaxing upstairs. He might have been doing a computer game and his dad would tell him off. I worked with Michael Owen when he was 19 and I did a book with Michael in a TV series, but I observed with Terry, his dad, a very similar, his dad was still the dad. I was doing some crossing with Michael and, Finishing, and dad, his dad ended up thinking maybe we've been doing enough of it, you know, being out there too long, too many reps. Whatever. His dad came over, Michael straight away. Sorry, dad, but I saw straight away, he's still his dad. Don Walcott with Theo, a little bit the same. I, I remember with Don at Southampton, he was not getting, I was possibly too influenced by positivity at the time, and I'm glad it worked out, but I, um, Don was not... The post office that Don used to work for, they were not letting him travel to games. They've sort of said, enough's enough. You're missing work. And I said to Don, don't worry about it. Quit. Because he's going to make it, which he did end up quitting. And thanks be to God, he did make it. Um, I think he was going to end up missing maybe his second or, th or third uh, first team game at Leeds. They wouldn't let him go. And uh, But yeah, the dads is a very, 
very interesting. The, the fathers, I think, that are too involved and too much, um, you know, you've heard of helicopter parenting. Yeah. That type of thing, I think, doesn't work. You've got to leave people to, to make their own mistakes. But um, I believe Neymar's dad is very, Neymar's obviously gone off course a bit, but I think it's, it's very interesting, The you know, because there's a lot of bad you know, you can get a lot of bad stuff about parents and, and young players and all the rest of it, but I do think they need a they need a strong guiding guiding light guiding force. Yeah, so I mean, it's a balance, isn't it? Because you do read a lot about how uh, youth football can get quite toxic, where you know parents are over competitive or over involved. Um, yeah, so it's it's an interesting consideration. Um, I think you were you were going to mention your your second psychological uh, trait that you think is important. Yeah, it, these are these are considerations rather than yeah. you know every player doesn't have to. These are considerations, possibly from observations. But the next one would be clarity, and linked to that simplicity, and by clarity, singleness of purpose. Um, perhaps linked to the goal setting. But with young players, we want to be very careful that we are not making with them football the be-all and end-all. Because as I said before, the percentages and statistics tell us it's highly unlikely that it doesn't matter if you play, if you are like Mikey, you're playing for England, 16, 17, 18, I've had them. Still, very small chance that you'll be there age 23 in a first-team career. And So you've got to watch that. But once, if you're talking about, you know, professionals and people who are in it and it's you know they committed to it clarity living for football and i'll use my example here janino janino had when i met him brazil number 10 pele shirt brazilian player of the year south american player of the year if not for terrible injury that he got in atletico madrid in 97 we'd have seen 98 actually start of 98 i think we'd have seen even more from him what a player at the time, but his only interest was football. He didn't have any interest in cars. In fact, people used to say to me, "Why does he drive that? Drive that?" It was I think it was called a Vauxhall Frontiera. He didn't care what it was. Somebody had given him it. The clothes he wore, either somebody in Brazil had given him t-shirts and jeans free. He just wear them. People had laugh at his. Some Middlesbrough player had laughed at his clothes, or he'd wear Nike shoes because he was given them. He had no interest in anything other than being the best football he could be. If you asked him to do an interview, he said, no, I'll do play football. The the words will follow if I play well. You asked him to do this or that. And again, his dad's always there behind it, watching and, you know, his dad was very wary as to who he let into his orbit and his life. But great clarity. Met Janino at 22. When he was, I think, the last time he was at Middlesbrough. Uh, so how old would he have been in 2004? Yes, so he's about about 30 by then but that same singleness of purpose clarity and linked to that a simplicity not a million and one people in his life not a million and one hangers on you know so-called sponsors or whatever it is what i've seen over the years is a player very quickly gets around them an entourage and then the entourage even has an entourage it gets quite absurd and now i'd say at the minute it's possibly worse than ever, maybe fueled by social media, people being able to get in touch with players, I'm not sure. But he had a clarity, a singleness of purpose. He wanted to be the best player he could be. He used to sit with me on a night and say, being a footballer isn't success, it's common. To be in 20, 30 years' time where kids, we didn't really have the internet then too much, it had come out, but he'd say, to get 20, 30 years' time, you've got kids opening books and there's a picture of you or there's a mention of you. That's success. And that, Okay, it links to the goals, but he lived with clarity and a simplicity, not 
anything that came towards him that he saw was taking him away from that goal, he would ignore and run a mile from. And had a real acute interest in his own physical development, his own, you know, Middlesbrough at the time, obviously trained once a day, as every club in England did, but maybe only trained three times a week. And he was like, what is going on? I'm training in, in Sao Paulo twice a day, three times a day. What, what's going on? Ask Brian Robson, can they do extra? No. Emerson came from Brazil, Emerson in Porto, couldn't do extra. And they were like, OK, on the one hand, Emerson's trying to get in the Brazil team. Janino's got the number 10 shirt. Janino would say to me, every week in Brazil, there's somebody else coming through. Every month, somebody coming through. When I'm going back with Brazil, my level, my uh, all of his levels were down in terms of his testing. And he had a real awareness of that. In England, we, we were not too, too bothered about weighing players. We were not too bothered about... Um, there wasn't any testing, really, that went on at all. Um, so his interest was just being the best footballer he could be and was right through his, his, his career, but lived simply, lived simply. He who needs least has most. He didn't want any watches. He didn't want any of this. He didn't want any of that. He's got a great life today. He's the general manager of the Brazil national team. Had a great post-football career and balanced himself out with his family and with a few friends, but had real clarity and, and simplicity. That's, uh, that's really fascinating, Simon, because it's kind of the antithesis of the cliche modern-day footballer. And I suppose it's interesting that you picked up on the, the role, potentially, of social media in providing a distraction. It was something that we we touched on, actually, with a, a previous guest, Nick Nick Littlehales, who's kind of better known as the sports sleep coach, and he was talking mm-hmm. about that being a real issue. Now, is, is that something you're seeing with, with young players that, that you're working with? Yeah, not necessarily ones, obviously, in addition to the ones I work with. I know plenty of them and uh, it's 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 changed things, um, whether it's, you know, people trying to give them clothes or sp- sponsor them with, you know, things you wouldn't believe. Give them this. Will you do this? We'll give you free treatments for that. We'll give you. It's just incessant. And, you know, some of these people as young players, maybe a year or two before in their life, they only knew about 10, 10, 15 people. Okay, they knew the people from school. Small circle. And it goes whoosh. And um, it's very, very difficult. Very difficult. And social media has made it worse and it's made them more accessible because even if, you know, I mean, you've got clubs now, uh, some clubs, there's instances where clubs are off, are going for a player more because he's got a big social media following, believe it or not. And maybe paying that player a little bit more in so then it's hard for players to sort of not be on it and avoid it. And of course, it's the way of the world, but it is meaning a heck of a lot of people get at them, whether they're offering them cars or whatever else. And um, it's, 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 it's no answer to it, really, as far as I can see, other than education. But if it had been Janino's dad back in the day, he'd have grabbed his phone off him. I think give him a £10, you know, a £10 Nokia or something like that with a, but it's a bit of a problem, yeah. Is, is that something you're having to think about uh, when you're working with young players with integer now then, Simon? Well, it is, and it's, it's with uh, professional players as well. And But all you can do is, you know, I'm 50 years of age in with my soccer schools, maybe the height of the success. I'm 50, 50 actually in a week, weeks a day, I'm 50 in a week. Uh, the height of my success with the soccer schools, I had more money than sense. I had 
this around me, that. I know what a little bit of it is like. And I made mistakes and I had people saying to me, well, you know, watch for this and watch for that. So they're all the more younger. So you've got to have great patience and great understanding with them. It's difficult and advise them as best you can and sometimes. But uh, it's something that you've got to, yeah, there's people coming at them from from all from all angles. Simon, um, on to kind of the next uh, consideration. Then, what what have you got? What have you got in store for us next? Yeah, I'd say industry, which is work. Let's go back to the the great polymath Benjamin Franklin. Simple little quote: "Industry need not wish, work, work, work can." You know, people talk of the debate between you know talent and you know the ten thousand hours and. You know, we had the book, the, the books, the popular books, the, the talent code and bounce and stuff like that. The books follow that, the sports gene, nature, nurture of all of that. Work will take you a long way. You do not need to be anywhere near as, however you describe gifted naturally, as people would think. Work will take you a long, long way. I've seen people go into careers and play at a high level that were certainly not of a younger age the most talented but they work they worked and they worked and they worked and so there's a lot of crossover in some of these um harold shepherdson who was the trainer of the england national team when they won the world cup in 1966 harold i worked with harold as a tea boy at bbc radio cleveland when i was 16 17 and i don't know why we were talking but harold said to me back at that time, that um, a footballer will, he was talking of arrested development. He said, if, he said, if you're ever working with footballers or you ever, he said, footballers more or less stay the same age psychologically as they are when they sign their first professional contract. I didn't quite know what he meant at the time. And of course, that's not true. But in a way, footballers do get quite a fair bit done for them. And it's becoming a little, little bit better now. But I think footballers, certainly in the 90s and the rest of it, there's just everything done for you. We used to have, you know, players at Middlesbrough, some foreign players who'd come to Middlesbrough Football Club would ring up, you know. I mean, the first ones that came in, Emerson, Janino, etc. there wasn't really any, wasn't really too much support at all. But after that, when it became a little bit more, okay, there's everything. People would ring the club because the remote control isn't working and stuff like that. And people... So they get a lot done for them and it's difficult for footballers. Then you get to your mid thirties and you're out into the world and it's, but the other side of that to the Harold Shepherdson, what, what Harold was saying is a friend of mine in coaching said to me this, and I think it's not too far off a young pro before they made the first team debut will almost do anything to tell them that will help them to make that debut or getting that first team or whatever more or less do anything. Once they've made it, once they are there, they're not so interested in doing too much. And again, when they get something, even if it's not a tremendous amount of money, people stop the work that got them there. I have innumerable examples over the years of this. Some of the most industrious, tenacious, hardworking people that when they have got to a level it stops. And I never used to be able to understand it. I used to think to myself, well, do you not want to be the best player in the world? Do you not want to, do you, do you not want, I, I couldn't, I can't, I still can't understand it to this day. But that is a very 
common thing in my experience that when the bit of success comes and they're getting a bit of given there and they're giving that, the work stops. If you can carry that work on, I'm not saying the whole world is yours, but the whole of football opens up to you because it's not common to, to, to keep that zeal. If you can, I'm going to come on to that again, but if you can keep that work ethic. James Milner would be a great example. I remember a friend of mine, Brian Marwood, who ended up at, Brian's at Man City now still, I think. And Brian and I used to meet regularly in the you know late 90s, 2000s work I was doing with Nike. Brian was head of Nike, Nike in England. And I remember when James Milner went up to Newcastle and Brian's son was uh, an academy player at Newcastle, James. And Brian would say, every night I'm up there with the academy, Milner's still there, hitting balls. Look at the career that James Milner's had. He's kept working, but it's it's quite rare. And if you can encourage more to be like that, then they've got a great opportunity. And linked to that self, self-discipline, self a quote I like on self-discipline from, I think it's Albert Hubbard, self-discipline is the ability to make yourself do what you should do, when you should do it, whether you feel like it or not. And self-discipline tends to go, the things that have got them there, so many of them find to maintain and it links to some of the other stuff it's the, the all the different people come in there's the distractions if you can we need to if we can and you want to really be successful to maybe to to work to stay away from them simon i think there's something about that self-discipline quote that sort of resonated with me not necessarily in a good way so uh yeah that's that's really interesting mm-hmm. um, i think there's something something you said there around you know industry and self-discipline I think something we're all starting to see at the top level of football now is that the players that do have those qualities are the ones that are really pushing the boundaries of the longevity of their career as well. So I'm thinking of Ronaldo, you mentioned James Milner, you've got Zlatan Ibrahimovic kind of yep. still doing wonderful things at, you know, at the stage of career when you thought he was done five years ago. I mean, that's really demonstrating those kind of uh, characteristics, isn't it? For sure. And the foresight, I mean, Ronaldo has been a trailblazer. I remember Ronaldo saying maybe six years ago, he said, I'm going to play till this age. In my last years, I'm going to lose three kilogram because, and gave a rationale for it. And he's doing it. But yeah, it's last time. It, it could be, I mean, we, yeah, I was, I was saying to somebody recently, we could see a real change, I think, in the, the age that players, you know, retire at. And I think we might get players playing for, on, on mass playing for, for a fair bit longer. Yeah. Yeah, and I suppose the flip side to that is we can all think of quite high-profile players at our clubs who turn up for pre-season and, and don't look like they've necessarily got that same work, work ethic. <laughs> well, back in, back in the day, almost all, you know, the, the majority were like that. You might have had one or two that weren't. It's changed. Football is now very few drink. Um, it's totally changed. And so I think the, you know, you can look a little, you can look a little bit at the difference between even uh, when, you know, when Rooney and, and and Ronaldo. I mean, I did some work with Mick Clegg, who was the Manchester United power strength and conditioning coach, and you know, some pe- people em- embraced the extra work with Mick, some didn't. But I think it's it's becoming far more, um, you know, it's it's far more rare. I think to get to get to get people who don't, you know, the players are changing. Simon, I found it quite reassuring to think that, there, that there's still hope for, for people <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> who might not have yet had that football career. Um, what, what, have you, uh, what have you kind of picked out next in terms of the, the kind of psychological considerations? Yeah, I call it, I've always called it the outside, somebody who's on the outside looking in. Um, linked to that, well, I'll come on to what it links to in a minute, but Gareth Bale comes to me here 
when I pitched up for my brief stint at Southampton, Gareth was a first-year scholar. Same with Theo. In fact, he roomed with Theo at the lodge. The great foresight from Rupert Lowe there. He, he had this residential thing for the players, which I think was a big part of the, for the success that they had there. But um, Sir Clive Woodward and I were given in our first weeks a group of players to work with sort of in essence this is going to be the first team of the future and we want you two to be mentoring them each day working with them etc etc and um, so we had Theo Walcott Nathan Dyer Leon Best who was fantastic at the time great lad still uh, as I say McGoldrick Matty Mills Martin Craney but um, Bale was not in that first group and I'd only got his scholarship by the skin of his teeth and played what I believe was one good game, which was the, the the game that got him decided that he'd get his scholarship just before I came in. I played his first good game in about three years. He'd had problems with growing and various other things. But I think there was some there, maybe didn't rate him. And in fact, even he, he had this good performance in a make-or-break game, and I believe that um, there was still a couple maybe that voted against him having the scholarship. And of course he got it. But because I had Theo in my group and I started training Theo early in the morning at seven o'clock with some of the others. We'd open stay for Wood, Clive and I. He'd do his session with Stuart Henderson at 10.30 and when he got into the team with Harry, he'd train with them. But then I used to get Theo again on a night. So we got a real wonderful group together, uh, Clive and I, morning and night time. So the players were training essentially three times a day. Leon Best, people like that would ring me. We'd do an extra session on a afternoon sometimes in David Lloyd in Southampton so four sessions Nathan Dyer when he went to Nathan was quite hard to get to buy into it initially and Theo not Theo as much but Nathan them two were very close always together um, why we you know we need to get up early well on the night time we're doing this but eventually they did so much so when Nathan uh, was on loan at Burnley months and months and months or might have been a year or so later he rang me up one day I'm back in Leeds, my office. And I said, how are you? I said, you scored last night. Well done. Playing for Steve Cotter. He said, I'm not good. I'm not, we're off today. And I said, well, it's all right. You played yesterday. He said, well, no, you've told us if we're not moving forwards, we're going backwards. I should be training with you. I'm doing this. Is there any way you could come up? His he, work ethic completely changed. Again, industry. Nathan wanted to be training, wanted to be working. Saw what the body could really do, not just one session a day. But we go back to Bale, this outside looking in. My early time of running that group every way I in Southampton everywhere I went every corner I turned Gareth Bale was looking at me and then he'd look away I'd be here there he was time later I realized it was because he was hoping to get an invite into the group but he was very much on the outside looking in he was again he just got his scholarship by the skin of his teeth later myself Clive and Stuart Henderson give him his debut for the reserves and he came part of things but I always remember how he used to he was often on his own but I used to think to him you want to be Theo or you want to be and it was clear in his and again years later he's the world record transfer and how fantastic he did maybe Gareth in Real Madrid maybe you've got too much money I don't know and you're not quite working but Gareth was on the way to becoming the best player in the world you wouldn't have thought it back then but I think it from what I saw it had his birth in the fact that he wasn't at the front. You know, some of the lads we had at Southampton at the time, people would say to me, 
Leon Best, he's the next Ronaldo, I mean, the, the original Ronaldo. You know, the guys who were, even Theo, didn't really kick on. The guys who were at the top didn't. Bill came from the bottom and all the way through. And of course, there's a humility that in that and a need to work. And you've, you've got that work, you know, Dave Collins, the rocky road to success and this talent needs trauma and failure. But I think all of that linked together, if you can have, you know, some failure, some, I don't know, I've seen it a lot, to be honest with you. There's a, the Bill would be the example. But uh, it's interesting. I tried to say, it, I deal with a fair few players who are at the top in their clubs and even nationally. And I say, be careful, be careful. And I'll, I'll talk on things like that. So obviously you worked with, with players like Gareth Bale and Theo Walcott at, at Southampton. Is it is it nice now to kind of look back on on that time and think some of the methods that, that you employed at Southampton, which you know, you know, arguably you could say kind of Bielsa's now now emulating at, at Leeds. Is it nice to look back on that? I think yeah, it really paid dividends. Um it would be nice if I thought that way, but I I tend not to. Um I sort of just try to look forward so I mean the, the happiest things really at the minute is the players I've got at the minute and what I see next for them and uh, I couldn't give you some of their names but that's the exciting part and then you're thinking what's coming next I would almost look back on that as okay that was that was then it doesn't give me particularly a good feeling to think well we, okay we've been proved right on this or not really um, I enjoy working I enjoy industry myself I love work and so uh, and I've got balance in my life today which I I didn't have which is obviously everything's impossible unless you've got balance but um, no I I just try to look forward and that's interesting Sam because you alluded to that at the beginning of our conversation where where do you see you know you talked about football over the next 20 years where do you where do you see it going what what are the what are the key developments that, that you expect to see in the game going forward well, it's going to get faster. It's going to get more athletic. I was looking at some academic work on it very recently. Um, high intensity speeds are going to increase. Distance is going to increase yet more. Passes per minute are going to increase. We'll have the centre half, centre backs, I think, involved far more athletically than they ever have been. Uh, whether or not this is a good thing or not, this is what's happening. And um, the trends, if we go back to 2001, 2002, we look at what happened to 2010. 2010. In fact, things seem to be speeding up. We may get more injuries if or we're going to have to use bigger squads. Um, football has never been in this space it's in at the minute where players are putting themselves through the loads that they are in a game uh, as frequently. Okay, it's 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 made more um, it's more to the front at the minute with the amount of games we're playing with, with COVID. But uh, yeah, so it's it's going. I think it's going to get even faster and more athletic, and players are going to have to make decisions far quicker so okay attention span concentration decision making this these things which we we know about anyway but i think they're going to be more acute i have a final one if that's okay yeah go, go ahead it was just to be a reflective practitioner and i wouldn't like the industry one i, I wouldn't tie it to a particular player i'd name it would be more players i'm working with today but i think a reflective practitioner we hear people say i don't have time to think and i have odd people say to me i don't have time to reflect but I encourage players to take one hundredth of the day, to take 15 minutes of each day, just reflecting on the decisions they made, possibly the interactions they had with other players, football is a social game, social intelligence is another thing we could have talked about. And key, being grateful, being present and emotionally intelligent. You're going to have a life after football. 
and we need to maybe emotionally start preparing for that now. And that maybe can be even a more efficacious way to win. And you can enjoy the journey a little bit and certainly in, in hopefully enjoy the bits after as well. Simon, thanks so much for that. Really, really appreciate your time. It's been absolutely fascinating. John, absolute pleasure. Yeah, Simon, that was absolutely great. And, and I was supposed to take the interview full circle. We started off talking about Socrates. And I mean, it's fair to say that the future of the game, you're probably not going to have too many substitutes popping into the changing rooms for a fag before they come on no. in the future. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, I don't think that was even that common then or that common in <laughs> 82 when he did it. But as I said, that guy was a one-off and, and, and what, a, what a man. So that was our interview with Simon Clifford, founder of Integer Football, and Luke, just a genuinely interesting guy. Really, really interesting. I mean, we say this about a lot of our guests, John, but you know, I, I felt like we could have carried on talking for a good couple of hours after we'd finished the interview, um, and and Simon would have continued to kind of tell us really, really, really interesting things. Um, I think what what came across, and you know, it's obvious from kind of the history of his career in terms of his role in bringing futsal to the UK and kind of advocating that to the FA, uh, his his work with Garforth, which we touched on in the intro, um, and also kind of you know the work he did. Um, with Sir Clive Woodward at Southampton, you know, a really forward-looking, forward-thinking, kind of innovative uh, football brain, um, and and yeah, it was it was really really fascinating the, the things he had to tell us. Yeah, and we were discussing kind of just before the podcast actually that when we asked Simon to kind of come up with these five psychological considerations, it would have been it would have been pretty easy, I think, to have plumped for some really obvious ones. I think confidence was probably the first one that I talked about when we when we spoke. Uh, and actually, a couple of the couple of the considerations that, that he talked about were were just things that I I hadn't hadn't really thought about. And I think one of those in particular was 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 on the outside looking in. Yeah, so so it, it might be worth just you know so the the five that uh, that Simon presented were were goal setting, um, clarity and singleness of purpose, industry and work ethic, being on the outside looking in as you just said, John, and being a reflective practitioner. Um, and I suppose you could argue that a couple of those seem fairly obvious, um, but but actually the examples Simon gave were really really kind of interesting, and I think added a bit of flesh to the bone on what on what he was talking about. But I really like that outsider looking in one, um, and you know the Gareth Bale example he gave as the player who wasn't necessarily the best in the academy, and I suppose that gave him the drive to push on and improve his game and work on things, and you know and eventually kind of when he got to the first team setting, kind of carry on working on things, and 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 the. Thing that struck me was you, you read a lot about the players who are kind of amazing in the academy not always uh, fulfilling their p- potential when they make it into the first team so you know, I'm thinking about uh, a good example would be you know the class of 92 Paul Scholes probably one of the best players in that group of players but you know even Gary Neville sort of sits and says yeah he was small and he wasn't very good when we played at the academy and, and, and then went on to have that amazing career but but I do think like there is something about peaking too early um, and that was a really interesting kind of way of articulating that. Yeah absolutely and as you were saying it was one of five considerations that, that Simon mentioned and the other, the other that really kind of struck me actually was was goal setting because the example that he gave, and he talked at length about his work with, with Michael Richards, was was fascinating because Richards uh, really kind of honed in on a particular position in that England team after realising 
that the, the centre-back quota was, was basically full and he was fighting against some serious competition there, as Simon was talking about, the likes of Rio Ferdinand, John Terry, Jamie Carragher. And to have the the wherewithal, uh, and I suppose also the kind of gumption to say, right, actually, that's the position that I played in, that in order to make in order to make good on the goal that I've set, I'm going to kind of switch tacks and play in a different position. I think it's actually quite quite unusual. I was thinking that, you know, I remember Harry Redknapp having a com- kind of a similar conversation with Danny Rose when he broke into the Spurs and basically saying that you're not good enough to be a Premier League left winger. You should play left back. And I think Rose initially resisted uh, and, and then obviously kind of, and then changed tacks and went on to be one of the best left backs in the country for quite a long time. But it's quite rare. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really interesting. I mean, we, we discussed that as being sort of the end justifying the means in a way. So the goal was to play for England and the way of doing that was to, you know, basically, um, you know, become a specialist in a position that was, was going to increase the chance to do that. I mean, the, the only thing that struck me on that, John, is I, I do think there are uh, lots of examples of where uh, players who have generally been midfielders uh, for most of their youth career kind of going backwards and playing, it's quite a modern phenomenon, but moving backwards and playing centre-back because of how good you need to be on the ball now. Um, so actually, it's not uncommon for kind of, you know, midfielders coming through the ranks and and then kind of ending up in defence, which is, which is interesting and, you know, probably ties into that that same sort of strategy in terms of, is this the best way to make it into first-team football? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I suppose something that's kind of common to, to most of those players is, is industry and work ethic. I, it's very rare that you kind of get to the, the, the the top of uh, the top of your game without without having that. But the example that Simon gave from a really personal relationship that he had with Janino was incredible. I mean, I, I it was this is pretty much ad verbatim. So from from what Simon was saying, you know, Janino said to said to him that, that being a footballer is normal. But if children are reading books that are talking about me in twenty to thirty years that's when I know I'll have made it. And I just thought, wow, that's that's such a contrast to kind of the usual cliche that you hear, which is, well, you know, if I win the FA Cup or I win the I, I win, maybe not the League Cup, if I win the FA Cup at the end of my career, then that's that's enough, you know, that's that, that's me done. Whereas Janino just had this this kind of ideal set in train from a really young age that just went way beyond that. I, and I suppose that's really pertinent in a week in which we've kind of lost a, a South American footballing legend. I mean, more than legend. I mean, you know, one of the one of the giants of the game. Um, but it is that interesting thing, isn't it? That if you, as you said, if you consider playing football to be normal, to just be a job, the thing that's actually difficult to achieve is sort of immortality in the game and and to become kind of you know legend status is so rarely dished out in football that for you to reach that kind of level um yeah it is it, sort of and and the stories you know all the stuff that we're revisiting with maradona this week you're, you're just seeing like the amazing and incredible things that he did in the sport and the all those iconic moments you know people won't just be reading about those in 20 to 30 years they'll be reading about those for the next 100 years or more won't they which is which is you know testament to to the achievement of the player yeah, I think it's also worth saying as well that the variety of examples that Simon gave were absolutely fantastic. I mean, you would have been pretty hard pushed to have picked Micah Richards, Janino, James Milner, and Gareth Bale. That's true. Yeah, yeah. I, I must admit, I I found his uh, his his 
insights into the life of Janino really, really, really interesting. Like I, I've just, I, I really enjoy kind of hearing stories about kind of footballers when they're off the pitch and how they live, what their mindset is. And I thought the stuff he said about Janino being sort of very simple, um, not really interested in money and all of the trimmings that come with being, you know, essentially a celebrity. Um, it did, did sort of make you think, you know, he's a bit different to the likes of Neymar you know if, if, if the only thing he's interested in is kind of being seen as this immortally great player you sort of think oh Neymar's you know probably could achieve that but you know he's very easily distracted <laughs> it's hard to imagine Neymar driving around in Vauxhall from <laughs> <laughs> uh, probably, probably a note probably a note to end on <laughs> I think so I think so <laughs> Uh, thanks for listening we hope you've enjoyed the podcast if you want to uh, hear more about Beat the Press uh, visit our website beatthepress.net there's loads of articles on there or follow us on Facebook Twitter or LinkedIn